God, the great and the mighty God. You are the awesome wonder. You are the first and you are the last. Before you there is no other, besides you there is no other. You alone are the most high God, the one that dwells in the highest of heights. The heavens, even the highest of heavens are your dwelling place, your throne room, O oh God. And the earth is your footstool. We worship you, O oh God, because there is no other God to worship. For all the gods that men have are but mere idols, the works of man's hands. They have eyes that do not see. They have ears that do not hear. They have mouths that cannot speak. They have hands, but they cannot save or deliver. They have feet, but they cannot walk. But you are a God that is alive and well. You are, you were, and you are forevermore shall be. We trust you. Eternally we trust you. For you have proven yourself trustworthy. You have shown yourself faithful. Your loving kindnesses and your tender mercies are renewed to us every day, O oh Father. And what can we say but thank you, Father. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you mean to us, O oh Father. For we recognize that apart from you, we are nothing. Absolutely nothing. But in you, O oh God, we are everything. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Thank you for rooting an identity in you, O oh God Almighty. Because we have you, Father, we have everything. And we lack absolutely nothing. We bless you, O oh God. 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 You are worthy, 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 O oh God. King of kings and Lord of lords. Mighty and majestic God. You are worthy, O oh 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 God. There is none like you, O oh God. You are worthy, O oh God. You are worthy, O oh God. You are worthy, O oh God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
and so we thank you mighty God you are God and God alone we bless you mighty father we thank you everlasting father you are God you are God you are God we worship you mighty God in Jesus name we worship hallelujah hallelujah and so father I ask you to take control as we minister this day oh father God that you give us the tongue of a ready writer. You give us the lips of the discerning, the tongue of the wise that will speak words that are appropriate and fitting, oh God. Be exalted in the congregation of your people, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Hallelujah. You're welcome, you're welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming out this evening. I am... Um, when I first came in, it was a scanty room. So I was asking pastor, did I scare them off from Sunday? <laughs> and he said, no, but it is good. There's some echo feedback. Am I standing to, okay. Well, hallelujah. I just wanted to continue the conversation we were having on Sunday, uh, ministers of reconciliation. Uh, we talked about the ministry of reconciliation. What is it? And why has God called us to it? Um, there was an angle that we brought out on Sunday, and I kind of wanted to bring a second dimension to what God had given us. So today we're talking about the ministry, ministers of reconciliation, my brother's keeper. Um, I asked us the question, um, on Sunday now that we found grace what are we going to do with it because that's the million dollar question because it's good to get to get to get to get to get but there's something about accumulation that makes you a hoarder and uh, hoarding is a, a defect in character now I'm not calling you people defective okay <laughs> But there's, there's something that's not right about hoarding, that our tendency as people is to share good news. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was thinking about it after Sunday's message, that even the devil recognizes that. There, there's a story Jesus tells in the Gospel of Matthew. talks about a man that's been delivered, when an evil spirit has gone out of a man, and it goes around and wanders through the dry places, and then when he finds no good abode, it comes back, but it doesn't come back alone. It goes and brings all his homies back with him. And so the person's uh, latter state is worse than his former. So even the devil likes to share bad news or his form of good news with his own people. And we have ultimate, the ultimate news. And why do we tend to hoard it? And so we recognize, we said on uh, Sunday that relationships are critical. That relationships are the essence of our, at the, at critical in human relations, at the essence of who God is, that we were created to be relational. That is why we are born into families. We're not born on the streets. Uh, our parents didn't have us and abandoned us, on the, abandoned, us, abandoned, us, okay. abandoned us on the streets. Try saying that fast 10 times. <laughs> so we're all born into families and into communities of people because we are social creatures. We're relational. And lone rangerism and isolationism are inconsistent with the nature of God. 
they're inconsistent with the character of God. Because God, by his own very nature, is a relational God. We talk about the Trinity. That should tell you something. That even the Godhead is three persons in one, interacting constantly and interchange and interconnectedness uh, of relationship in the Godhead. And God wants to replicate himself. He said we're created in the image of God. So as it is in heaven, as Jesus prayed, God expects it to be on the earth. And so if the Trinity is interrelational, uh, and uh, then people ought to be interrelational. And so if you see a person that's uh, a lone ranger, something's wrong with them. That's not right. That's not the nature of God. Amen? And so we wanted to talk about uh, this day, we wanted to continue in that, in that uh, conversation because the nature of God, like I said, in Genesis 3, the Bible tells us that God will come down in the cool of the evening to spend time with his buddy, Adam. That was that, again, God being relational. And as a matter of fact, it was in that course of uh, interaction between God and Adam that Adam realized that God already knew that he had messed up. Some people will tell, well, that God found out that, no, God knew Adam had messed up already. God knows all things. But God wanted Adam to know, I know you had messed up. But it didn't happen from a distance. God didn't pick up the phone and call Adam and say, I know what you did, Adam. God came down to Adam in the place of relationship and spent time with Adam and say, look. And it was in that process that God worked out restoration with Adam. And, and I wonder... Some of us expect um, close relationship with people that we keep at an arm's length. Because proximity is what builds intimacy. Okay? If I want to be intimate with you, if I want you to share your deepest heart's uh, thoughts, if I want you to tell me what you're going through and how you're going, because we don't trust people, strangers, with our deepest emotions. There's a sense in which you only share those kinds of things with people that are proximal to you, people that are in close relationship with you. And so my question is, how can we as believers keep people at an arm's length, but then we expect them to share their deepest thoughts with us? Okay, because you have to invest time. You have to invest time in relationships. You have to invest time to earn time, to earn trust. I, and it, it's not something by, come to, by investiture. It comes by investment. In other words, if I spend time with you, I, don't, I can call myself Pope or Archpope or Archdeacon or whatever. People still trust people that, that care about them, that they know care about them. I can't demand it because of my title, because of my investiture. It is something I earn by the investment of my time and my resources, my affection. See... Time is the only resource that is not renewable. Once you spend time, it's gone. It's the most valuable thing we have. And to spend time with somebody tells them you're important to me. Because I can send you money. I can always make more money. Right? If I give you a thousand, it may make you happy. But there's something about investment of your time. Because that time will never come back again. The thousand dollars I give today, I, may, I, I, I probably will make back. But that time I spend with you will never come back. So I've given you a portion of my life which I'll never get back. And people recognize that, that when you invest your life in them, uh, that you then earn the right to their space, to their affections, to their deepest thoughts. Then you can speak to them where you are. See, people want to know how much you uh, care before they care how much you know. 
and, and were very quick to begin to preach at people. <laughs> and they pay you the courtesy of pretending that they're listening to you. But they're in your face, their real self is somewhere else. And so if we want to do what Jesus, if we want to be like Jesus, we have to cultivate the habit of investing time in people. Jesus invested his life in 12 people. And so who, whose life are you invested in today? Whose life are you investing in today? All this grace that you have given. See, if you invest grace, you earn souls. If you invest money, you'll make money. You'll get shares and dividends. That's why we all invest in the, in, in, uh, the stock market, because your return is money. But the investment of grace yields a dividend of souls. And so we can't, I know we, we, we pray for souls, yes. But the praying energizes your doing. God tells you, okay, go to uh, this sister, go to this brother. When you sit before them, this is the strategy that you are going to follow to get through to them. God gives you insight. God gives you strategy. God gives you direction. But there's no substitute for spending time with people. And, and you notice that even Adam, after he had offended God, God didn't abandon him. God still made for him a covering to tell him, look, you're important to me. And we are very, very quick. Somebody let us down. Somebody disappointed us. They did something we didn't like. They looked at us in the way we didn't like. They said something. Or we heard they said something. Or we thought we saw them do something. And we're so very quick to cut off from people. But that's not the nature of God. Even Adam that had offended against God, God still reached out to him. And I'm telling you, sometimes God allows certain things to happen in our lives. The closest people to us are the people that hurt us the most. Because God is using them as an instrument. Because God wants to process some things out of us and process some things into us. If Joseph's brothers hadn't done to Joseph what they did to Joseph, Joseph would never have left home. If Joseph had never left home, Joseph would never have been prime minister of Egypt. If Joseph had never been prime minister of Egypt, look at the sequence of events. The children of uh, his brothers and his family would never have been provided for because it was through that arrangement that they were preserved through the drought that the children of Israel, God preserved for him a posterity. And it was that out of that posterity that the uh, land of Israel was birthed. The children of Abraham came out of Israel, established a nation. It was out of that nation that your Redeemer and my Redeemer was born. So you see a sequence of events playing together. I'm wondering if Joseph had said, my brothers offended me, I'm going to cut off from them. If, in fact, the sequence of events that happened thereafter would have played out. God is infinitely good and infinitely mercy. Maybe he would have. Maybe, but we don't know. But we do know that Joseph made the right decision. And I'm asking you this evening, who are those relationships that you've cut off? Because somebody did something to you, said something to you, looked at you in a way you didn't like, you cut them off. Maybe you're cutting yourself off from a process that God is using to prepare you for what he has prepared for you. They said about Joseph that before his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. There was a testing that was preparing Joseph for what God had prepared for him. And there's no way to bypass that test. Because at the end of that test, you're the quality character that God knows will establish the work that he's doing. And so, 
don't be quick to cut off relationships because somebody has done something or said to you. Go back and reach back out to those people and mend relationships again. That's the currency of the, of the spirit. Pastor has taught that here. Um, if, if there's anything I, I, I uh, will take away from this church, it is the fact that relationships are important to God. Amen? And so we talked about hoarding the grace of God. That God, in fact, is not interested. God is looking. We can't sit upon the grace of God. God has given us that grace not that we, so that we use it to be invest it in somebody else's life. Not so that we will sit upon it and enjoy the experience. We said that God had given us the grace, especially the grace for reconciliation. Because God's most important uh, desire is his relationship with men. If you go with me very quickly, let us look at the verse of scripture. Uh, Matthew 22, 35 through 40. Can you pull it up real quick? Then one of them, uh, okay, so this was, uh, Jesus was teaching, was teaching about the kingdom of God. And uh, somebody, some, one of the Pharisees asked him a question. He says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and, and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment? Uh, I think the uh, NIV renders that, which is the greatest commandment? Yes. He said, teacher, which is the, thank you, sir. He said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Go ahead. He said, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the first and the greatest commandment. What is the first and the greatest commandment? What is the greatest, God's greatest interest in humanity? It's not a trick question. I'm not like pastor. <laughs> I don't ask trick questions. So God's primary greatest interest is in mending the relationship. And so what is the greatest ministry then that we have as believers? Ministry of reconciliation. You may be a prayer, a prayer warrior. You may be a prophet. Uh, you may be a seer of the future. You may be able to multiply bread and to multiply loaves. You may be able to do great and awesome things. But if you're not reconciling the men back to God, you need to go back and think about your ministry again. Because all of those things are given us so that we are able to effect that ministry that God has given to us as ministers of reconciliation. If all of my ministry is not enabling me to be a minister of reconciliation, then am I engaged in God's ministry is a question I need to ask myself. And so I'm asking you today, of all of the things that you're doing, is all of your ministry geared towards bridging the divide between God and man? If it's not, you need to pray, God, lay that burden in my heart so that when I see a person that is lost, I will begin to feel the same way you feel about them. That God's heart grieves and breaks when he sees a child that is abandoned. God's heart breaks when he sees a person that's carrying a heavy burden that they shouldn't be carrying. God's heart breaks when he sees people that are wandering lost, when there's in fact that a, a shepherd that has created a sheepfold for them. All of those things break God's heart. But does he break our hearts? Does he touch us? And do we even, do we even notice? 
Are we so preoccupied with our own agenda and the things we are doing, running here and there, uh, helter-skelter, that we don't even notice the ministry that God has given to us? Have we become too busy for God? And, and, and some of these are the questions that I ask myself. Because if you can truly look at yourself and evaluate where you are, then God can begin to get your attention. Because then the things that were hidden in plain sight, you begin to see them. That, that co-worker of yours that's been struggling, for whom you had the answer, suddenly you begin to take notice of them. That neighbor of yours that is wrestling and struggling with all kinds of issues, but then you've lived right next to them. God will begin to open your eyes. See, there's a problem. that I, I think the problem that we have, and I, I, I'll ask you, when I ask the question, do these things bother you? I, I, are you concerned about them? Most of you will say, no, I've done this and that. But I think the greatest answer is not what you tell me, but what I see you do. I talked on Sunday about what, something I called passive indifference. Well, indifferent, we really don't care. Or there's benign disinterest, you know. We know, but uh, I'm not interested. I have other things going in my life. Or there's malignant disobedience, where I know, but I don't care enough to do about it. God says, go left, and I'm like Jonah, I'm going to go right. That's malignant, because you're, you can't claim ignorance. You can't say that you don't know. And, and after this series of teachings, you can't say you don't know either. And, and the, the proper response is, God, help me so that I can be all that you have uh, called me to be. I'm going to kind of go to, um, let me jump forward. I'm going to jump forward. I talked about um, being our brother's keeper. We hear stuff like this, and we can respond one of two ways. We can continue in our passive indifference, right? Or we can respond as God responds, as God expects us to respond. Where we say, God, help me. I believe, but help my own belief. Or we can be like Cain. If you read the uh, Genesis, and I, I don't think we have time to read the entire story, but in Genesis chapter 4, the Bible talks about Cain. Cain was really upset at how, how God treated the sacrifice that he made, uh, brought to God, as opposed to how uh, his uh, brother Abel's sacrifice was received. And I, I think this thing really ate him up, so much so that he decided he was going to take his brother out. And so he took his brother out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he took his brother out. And ultimately, God came and demanded, where is thy brother, uh, Cain? He said, Cain, where is your brother? And here's what he asked God. He says, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, what's my business? I mean, I did, who made me guardian over my brother? And you recognize that God, it's interesting because God didn't respond to that question. God began to do a few things immediately after that. There is nowhere in that verse of scripture, if you read the story, where God called Cain and said, Cain, okay, here's your brother Abel. Now I give you charge over your brother Abel. Has anybody found that in the scripture yet? No. So there's an implied obligation and a duty that Cain had because he was uh, a brother to Abel and because they had the same father and they were of the same community. He had an implied obligation and duty under God, whether he knew it or not. And God held him accountable and responsible for that duty. 
what am I saying? That each one of us, I said we're born in families and we're born in communities of people. Whether we know it or not, under God, in God's eyes, we all have a duty, an obligation for the communities in which he has placed us. We have a duty and a responsibility under God for the well-being of the people that is as placed in our circle of influence. We have an obligation and a duty under God for the care of the communities into which we are born, the families into which we are born. I don't, look, I don't care how, how you define that community. Whether it's your community of believers in church, whether it's your communities of brothers in the family, whether it's your community of brothers in the neighborhood in which you live, whether it's your community of uh, people, co-workers, whatever community God has placed you in, God, ex God, God, there's an implied duty and an obligation on you under God for the welfare and the care of that community. And you also notice, I told you that God didn't uh, respond to, uh, um, to Adam's question, but God began to, in fact, put judgment upon him. So whether Cain accepted it or not, God did not absolve him of the responsibility of the duty he had towards the community to which he was a part of. And so God will not hold us blameless because we have jobs to go to, because we have families to care for, because we have uh, bills to pay, and we have uh, mortgages to pay. God will not hold us blameless for our duty and obligation to the communities in which God, I, I, I imagine that God, when that time comes, God is going to look at Sister Megan and ask Sister Megan, how about the person that lived next door to you? Where are they? I don't see them in this procession of people. That God is going to ask me, how is Mr. Marusas? Marusas is my neighbor to my left. Where is he? I don't see him. Because God, again, the Bible tells us that it's God that appoints our seasons and defines the boundaries of our habitation. You're not here by accident. God has intended for you to be here. God placed you in this season, in this time. And if like the sons of Issachar, you begin to seek God, God will give you an understanding of your season and what you ought to be doing. Amen? And so we all have obligations and responsibilities in the communities to which God has placed us. And, and, and if God didn't hold uh, uh, Cain responsible for the care of his brother, he wouldn't have put the judgment and the mark upon him as he did. Because God judged him for that. Amen? So we have duty of care as our brother's keeper. And let me kind of give us four duties I think that we, we owe um, in our communities, whatever that community is. We have a duty of awareness. In other words, what's going on with your brother? First question, where is your brother Abel? Where is your brother or your sister that you worship with? Why weren't they in church last Sunday? Do you know? Do you care? Where is that neighbor of yours that you know every Sunday morning as you're getting ready to go to church, they're cracking up that bottle of beer, they're sitting in front of their house and they're firing up the barbecue? Where is your brother and your sister that you work with? Why aren't they in church somewhere worshiping the God that created them? Are they working out and are they living out their purpose? Let's not think that God is going to, because God placed you strategically in that location for a reason. The Bible says that uh, we are a royal priesthood, First Peter 2.9, a holy nation, a peculiar people, 
called by God out of, his dark, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? So that we can declare the praises of him. God said that God, he, uh, uh, I think Acts 17, 24 said that God strategically has, has placed us, defined our boundaries and location. Why? So that men everywhere will reach out to him and touch him, though he's not far. So God placed you in there, not so that you make a dollar as good as a dollar is. But a dollar, your making of a dollar ceases when you turn 65 or when you leave that job. There's an eternity that exceeds that living that you're making from a dollar. And God is looking for a return of the investment of his grace upon your life. He's going to ask you, like the, uh, 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 like the uh, master that took a trip and asked his servants, invested it upon them all kinds of graces. You, you call them talents, I call them graces. He invested all kinds of graces on them and came back to demand from them, what have you done with the grace that I invested upon your life? Amen? So we have a duty of awareness. I talked about proximity. We need to, we need to be close to one another. Again, that's the way you earn the right to somebody's heart that they can open up with you and say, my husband is beating me. My wife is a witch. My children... <laughs> My children are rebellious because people are not free with that kind of information. But if they trust you enough, knowing that you pray over it, you counsel them right, they will open up to you. But it, you have to be in close proximity to them. So we all have a duty of awareness uh, for the welfare of our brother. James 5.16 says, pray for one another. Okay? I need to hold your hands and agree with you and pray with you over your circumstance. We have a duty of covering. The Bible says in Galatians 6.1, if a brother is caught in a sin, you who are stronger, encourage him. So we have a duty of covering. Uh, it is said that the Christian army is the only army that kills its wounded. But if, if, I, if I have a duty under God for the uh, welfare and the well-being of the community, uh, that he has placed me in and the people he has surrounded me with, then I have a duty to cover them. Okay? Yes, you did wrong, but God is able to restore you. Yes, that thing happened, but there's a grace available to make that situation right. Yes, you're carrying a heavy load and a heavy burden, but I tell you, there's a God whose shoulders are broad enough. Why don't you hand that thing off to him? Amen? That's how we utilize our grace. Okay, so we have a duty of covering. We have a duty of support. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a brother is born for adversity. The worst place to be in is when the walls are closing in on you and you have nobody you can run to. That's the loneliest place in the world. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a story I watched on National Geographic. It was this he was, uh, I think it was a, one of these people that study um, um, this native uh, 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 people in the Amazon that haven't seen uh, civilization. I don't know what they call them now. I just can't think right. But anyway, this guy had gone to this native Indian community that lived in the Amazon. And over time, he had learned their language. He had learned the, the, their customs and he had essentially become one of them. And so he married a native, uh, this guy was from New Jersey, married one of the natives, and then took the lady from that her small tribal community where they wear loincloth and they wear leaves and that's everything else all hangs out there, you know. That's free. They kind of show everything that God gave them because it's nothing to them. 
but he brought her to New Jersey. And you can't live like that in New Jersey. If you walk the streets, the cops will pick you up and take you to the man's cuckoo house, right? And so they were documenting this Indian, native Indian woman's life. She had two children with this man. They moved to New Jersey. And then she started to wear jeans and to dress up in clothes that constricted her. And invariably, she left, abandoned her husband, abandoned her children, and went back to her community. Because she said that there are many people living in this community, but they are all alone. She was alone in a crowd of people. She couldn't deal with it. She had so much less in her native Indian community that she came from, but she had the quality of life. She had people that surrounded her, that supported her. So all the cars in New Jersey, the big tall houses and the skyscrapers and the restaurants didn't mean anything to her. She was willing to walk away from all of those things because she had a quality of relationship amongst her tribal people running around in loincloths, dying from all kinds of diseases that have been cured in the Western world. But for the sake of that bonding, that relationship she had, she was willing to abandon New Jersey to go back home, abandon her husband, abandon her children just for the quality of that relationship. So we have a duty of support. Amen? And we have a duty to care. Uh, in Matthew 25, verses 40 through uh, 45, the Bible tells us uh, the story where um, on that day, it says the king, uh, the day of judgment, that the Jesus is going to come in his glory and is uh, going to uh, get all of the peoples from all of the nations, that the sheep will be on his right and the goat will be on his left. And then uh, he will tell those on his right, he said, come into my kingdom, you who are faithful of the Lord. He says, when I was hungry, you gave me to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you uh, visited me. And they said, look, when did you do this? When did we do these things? They said, in as much as you did it to the least of these, that you did it unto me. So the, in sense, Jesus was saying that when you serve the community, you are serving God. So when the Bible says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Maybe God is calling us. Maybe we haven't understood that uh, verse of scripture. Maybe God is calling us to give up of our creature comforts, to sacrifice the things that make our bodies comfortable and be willing to put ourselves out there on behalf of, our, our, of other people, of the least in the community. Who are the least in the community? Uh, Donald Trump may be president of America, but in God's eyes, he may be the least of people because he doesn't have the grace that you and I know. So the least of these are not necessarily the poor and the downtrodden and the outcasts. Yes, they may be the least of us. But a person that is cut off from the lifeblood of God, the lifeblood of Jesus, from eternal salvation, is in fact the least of these. And the Bible is telling us if we are willing to put ourselves out, to make ourselves uncomfortable, to go to the highways and byways and compel them to come in. Maybe that's the reasonable act of worship that God is looking for from us. Amen? So we have a duty of care for our brethren. And um, if, we're, if we do that, then we're indeed our brother's keeper. Uh, I'm going to, it's 825, I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap it up at this point. Um, uh, just a few final points. I said on Sunday that this kind of stuff does not happen in the church. 
the grace of God is not for us to kind of sit around in church. The light of God that is, that is us. And we say the light is in us. I think sometimes that's a, a, a misunderstanding of the scripture. The, the scripture didn't say, yes, it uses the anal analogy of lighting a candle. But it doesn't call us a candle. The Bible doesn't say we're a candle. It doesn't say that we, uh, we carry light. It says we are light. Okay? We don't carry light. We are light. And the light is required for the darkness. And so wherever you are, God expects you to shine. Shine bright. Because the darkness requires that light. And I was going to say something, but I kind of forgotten. So wherever you are, God expects you to shine as light. You are salt of the earth. Wherever you are, God expects you to bring flavor and seasoning, to push back the corruption in that place. That's what God is expecting of you to do, uh, expecting of you. And that's the grace he has given upon you. That's what he expects of you. I remember that I saw, um, I think it was Denzel Washington gave an interview. And um, he said uh, when, uh, when he really took his faith seriously, in Hollywood, that he went to his pastor and said to his pastor, Pastor, he thinks that God is calling him to the ministry, right? That, that, uh, that he wants to prepare for the ministry. He says uh, he wants to prepare for the pulpit. The pastor told him, you already have your own pulpit. He said, you, you have a better pulpit than I have. All of you in your various capacities have a better pulpit than anything that happens here. And if you will use that pulpit, God is going to bless you and reward you. I'd like us to spend a minute in prayer. Because I, I think um, when we get the spirit that was in Nehemiah, when Nehemiah was burdened, he was in the king's palace, but he wasn't comfortable for one day because the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. I think we need to pray for God to make us uncomfortable in our complacency that when we see that person that walks by us and we know that this person, if they die tomorrow, they're not making it, that God will put such a burden that, in fact, we will begin to cry, that it will be something that we can taste in our mouths, something that we sense. That sense of discomfort will not leave us until we obey God. Can we stand to our feet and pray? I don't know how you want to pray that prayer. But Father, hear the hearts of your people this day. Father, we acknowledge before you this evening that we are not as burdened as you are about the lost. We are not as concerned as you are about this ministry of reconciliation to which you have called us. Father, break our heart with what breaks yours, so Father God Almighty. Burden our hearts with what burdens you, Father God Almighty. Father, sensitize us to the needs around us, O God Almighty. Father, turn our eyes away from ourselves, O God Almighty, and help us to see the things that are around us, O God. Father, like Paul, let the scales fall from our eyes, Father God, that we'll begin to see as you see, O God. Open our ears that we might begin to hear the things that are unspoken. Give us a sensitivity in our heart by your spirit that we'll begin to discern, oh God, the needs that are around us. Help us by the power of your spirit, mighty God, 
that will be a people of passion, a passion for the lost, a passion for the dying, a passion from those that are cut off from the lifeblood of God. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, make us uncomfortable, O God Almighty, in our complacency. Father, wake us up from our God Almighty, from our lukewarmness, O God Almighty. Kindle a fire in our spirit again, O Father, that we might cry like the great apostle, Lord, give me souls or I die. Father, I thank you that this will be more than just mere words, but that this will be true cry of our hearts. I thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.